0: And maybe give us a little bravery yeah. to read those chapters yeah. instead of having sticky pages.
1: I think that's right. What's needed is bravery. That's a good way to put it. Isaiah's tough, and people get excited. You know, on oh, New Year's resolution, I'm going to read Isaiah this year, right? And I'm going to get serious about this in two chapters. in. By the going. way,
0: it's never been my New Year's resolution. <laughs> good. <laughs>
1: But yeah, I think people tend to start reading Isaiah and they get a couple of chapters in and they just throw up their hands and say, what do you do with a cow and a sheep? And but what what does this even mean? But I try to give enough resources in there to say, look, here's how to find a good commentary so that when you come across a passage where you can just go, I have no idea, here's how to find some answers. Here are what translations you might look at as alternatives to the King James to help you sort of get oriented. Here's how to understand what Nephi is doing so you don't assume that any, everything Nephi tells you about Isaiah gives you all the information you need. Yeah, it needs some bravery, uh, but it also we also need some tools.
2: Welcome to LDS Perspectives podcast, where we explore aspects of LDS doctrine, history, and culture, digging deeper and having a whole lot of fun
0: learning about things that affect our lives and our faith.
2: We are everyday Mormons sharing extraordinary conversations.
0: Hello, my name is Laura Hales. I'm here today with Joe Spencer, and I am hosting a podcast where we're going to talk about Isaiah in the Book of Mormon, something that most of us kind of like to skip over. Yep. (laughs) Joe, can you tell us a little bit about yourself?
1: Sure. Uh, I currently am teaching at Brigham Young University in ancient scripture. My training's in philosophy, so I have a PhD from the University of New Mexico in philosophy. I work on the Book of Mormon a great deal, especially Isaiah and covenantal theology. And then I do a lot of work in philosophy as well.
0: Okay, tell us what covenantal philosophy
1: is. (laughs) Covenantal theology? It's theology, Um, there you go. Covenantal theology. The idea here is just to look at how, running through all of Scripture, but primarily I look at Isaiah, the Book of Mormon, the Apostle Paul. But running through Scripture, there's this emphasis on there having been a covenant that was made with Abraham and his descendants, and so on, that governs the way God works with human beings through history. So, covenantal theology is looking at various aspects of that, how various people have understood it. Of course, Genesis doesn't have the same understanding of it that Isaiah does, and Paul, again, has a new understanding. The Book of Mormon has something else to say, the Doctrine and Covenants goes in another direction still, so the idea is to look at these various texts and see how they're thinking about God's having bound himself to humanity.
0: That's fascinating. I can't wait to see what you write through the years on this really important topic. And I think it's a topic that's really relevant as we become more open these days to God making covenants with a whole bunch of different people.
1: Yes. Yeah, I think that's absolutely crucial.
0: Okay, in preparation for this podcast, Joe sent to me an article that he had written in 2009. Yeah, quite a while ago. The first thing that stood out to me was about two years ago, I became aware of what they would call the Isaiah problem Mm -hmm. involving Deutero-Isaiah. And on about page three of this article, you refer to, I think it's an Improvement Era article written mm-hmm. by the Sydney Sperry from yep. BYU addressing when. the Isaiah problem yep. in 1939. I'm yes. like, I'm a little bit late <laughs> to this party.
1: <laughs> right.
0: So, Joe, as a covenant theology scholar, do you think Isaiah in the Book of Mormon is a problem?
1: Uh, depending on how we define the word problem, yes. By If by problem we mean like does this spell doom or disaster for the Book of Mormon? Then no. But where problem means something like a set of difficulties that need to be worked through and sorted out, then yeah, it's a problem. The by far majority consensus and today in today among Isaiah scholars is that major portions of Isaiah were written a good deal later than they should have been. Uh, to end up in the Book of Mormon. And even if we were to decide that they're wrong, we have to engage with the arguments of those Isaiah scholars. So it is a problem, though I'm not convinced it means that the Book of Mormon is in any way false or unhistorical.
0: So you've written that in the past, scholars have taken a misguided approach to why Isaiah is in the Book of Mormon. Could you briefly go over some of those approaches sure. that you disagree with?
1: Well, for one, there's this sort of critical approach that you can find, in, whether an in anti-Mormon literature or critical literature, that will say something like, well, Isaiah is in the Book of Mormon because... Joseph Smith is cocking this thing out of his head, and when he gets bored or runs out of ideas, he just starts quoting Isaiah to make up for lost time or something, right? Or to give himself some time in order to come up with something else. Or so. That doesn't make a lot of sense uh, when you actually look at how carefully integrated Isaiah is into the Book of Mormon. But I'm also skeptical about the approach that just says something like well Nephi was just kind of into Isaiah so he kind of quotes from Isaiah but this isn't the really important stuff. So we have sort of two different approaches that I think are problematic. One that says Joseph's just bringing this in and then the other where eh, it's kind of incidental, it's not that really not really that important to what the book of Mormon's doing.
0: The way I've heard it is, like, Nephi was on a desert island, and this was the only book book. he had. (laughs) He had the Pentateuch. He had a book maybe by Zenos and Isaiah, and he took to Isaiah. Is that what you're referring to?
1: (laughs) Yeah, that sort of idea, just sort of, what else does he do? He's got a civilization of 45 people or something like this, and one book, yeah. But no, I think he's doing something much more careful and much more theologically interesting.
0: You also have an issue with using Isaiah in the Book of Mormon to prove or disprove historicity. Is that correct?
1: Yeah, I'm just not, uh, in many ways, I'm just not interested in the question. In part because my training's as a philosopher, not as a historian. So I don't know that I'm fully prepared myself to make good, hard-hitting arguments one way or the other. I have to leave that to specialists. But also my worry is that when we focus on just trying to decide what Isaiah's presence in the Book of Mormon says about the book's historicity, we miss the richness, the theological depth of the claims the Book of Mormon is making with Isaiah. True
0: confession time. I have tended to say in the past, and we've done in our family scripture reading, we've called those the sticky pages <laughs> right. at the end of 2 Nephi, yeah. where we get to about Second Nephi 8, and they start to stick together, and then all of a sudden they flip to Mosiah. It's right. a really great <laughs> thing. So let's talk about why, in your words, Isaiah is not only incidental to the historicity question, but crucial to understanding the Book of Mormon, because that's Uh, the thesis of what you write.
1: Yes. It's central for a couple of reasons. One is that if you, for the moment, just ignore everything after Nephi, just looking at Nephi's writings, it is clear from structural things he does, the way he organizes his materials, that the whole of his record is about Isaiah. Of course, Second Nephi. I think that's relatively clear. But already in First Nephi he tells you that the stuff at the core of Second Nephi are his his most important things, the plain and the precious. And then even in First Nephi, much earlier than Second Nephi, where we tend to trip up, you've got Nephi quoting from Isaiah, you've got him giving visions and then trying to explain them by using Isaiah. So throughout Nephi's record, Isaiah is the key. I can say a lot more about that, but it really is, I think, central to Nephi's project. It does seem to disappear in Mosiah, and Alma, and Helaman, but I think the Book of Mormon has an account of why that happens, and it's not necessarily the happiest story, and then what's really telling is that when Jesus shows up in 3rd Nephi, he says, get Isaiah back up, it's time to go back to what Nephi was doing, and so there's this kind of restoration or reinvigoration of Nephi's interest in Isaiah, and that's, I think, suggestive, that it opens that way, and that at its climax, we have Christ himself saying, here's the key.
0: In your writing, you've touched on, I think, some questions people have had and not really had satisfying answers for. So when I read your take on why Isaiah is in the Book of Mormon, you discuss Isaiah being there for narrative reasons. This is a well-thought-out book. He's not just sitting down, okay, this is first draft, I need to think about what I write because once I put it on these plates, I can't erase it very well. I can't crunch it up and throw it in a ball. So he is designing the words very carefully. And you talk about three narrative hinges in the Book of Mormon. Yes, we primarily consider Isaiah being in 2 Nephi. And then just kind of gloss over other parts. And you're telling us they're crucial to the whole story of the civilization, at least in the way they view their religion. Can you go over the three narrative hinges that you found with Isaiah in the Book of Mormon? Sure.
1: The first one's just Nephi, and that's relatively obvious, right? He's obsessed with Isaiah. He has a lot of things to say about it. So for the moment, maybe that's enough just there. there's Obviously, Isaiah is central to the project Nephi is working on. The second narrative hinge is the one we, I think, easily miss. And that's in Mosiah with the prophet Abinadi. He is, we're well familiar with the general story, right? He's prophesying at the time of Noah. People aren't terribly happy with what he's saying. So he ends up accused in a kind of trial setting. But Noah's priests present him with a passage from Isaiah and say, interpret this passage. What does this mean? And it seems relatively clear from the context that they understand the passage to justify their power, They're using it to say, oh, we are the people who Isaiah spoke about who have rebuilt Jerusalem, meaning the land of Nephi, and who have allowed the Lord's arm to be made bare in the eyes of all the nations, i.e., we've won battles against the Lamanites, etc. And so they see Isaiah saying, this regime is the right one, and so on. And Abinadi is forced to interpret this text in a way that is not going to justify corrupt power And so he introduces a totally non-Nephi-like interpretation of Isaiah. For Nephi, it's all about the Abrahamic Covenant, the history of Israel. Benedi reads Isaiah, and it's all about the coming of Jesus Christ. And so he quotes from Isaiah 53 about the suffering servant. He quotes other bits uh, from Isaiah 52 and develops a Christological interpretation of Isaiah. And it seems that this is a narrative hinge because suddenly Isaiah, after this, more or less disappears from the Book of Mormon. You can see Nephites going, okay, if a is right, and Isaiah is really just about Jesus can we just talk about Jesus? That's a lot easier to do, right? And so for generations and for 100 years of the Book of Mormon, there's no talk of Isaiah really at all. The third narrative hinge comes when Christ shows up and he says, let's go back to what Nephi is doing. That I think we're relatively familiar with because we quote Jesus saying, great are the words of Isaiah, commandment I give you, read these things diligently, and so on. So we know Jesus likes Isaiah, but we don't tend to Look at what he has to say about him. But what's really striking is not only does he go back to reading Isaiah in a Nephi-like way, it's about the history of Israel, it's about the covenant, but also he uses the very passage that Noah's priests presented to uh, Abinadi, and he interprets it in terms of the covenant and the history of Israel rather than in terms of the coming of Jesus. So we have Christ himself saying, yeah, maybe that's about me in a certain way. Really, here's how I want to read it. So there we have a kind of hinge that turns us back to Nephi. And if we see the whole of the Book of Mormon that way, then we can see a kind of strong initial emphasis on Isaiah, historical reasons that there was a shift away from it for a time, and then a kind of restoration that refocuses the Book of Mormon intensely on the question.
0: It's not only quoting Isaiah and keeping Isaiah prominent in their discourse, it's what Isaiah is saying about the nature of God, and how to baptize.
1: Yeah, it's that, uh, and I'd say even a good deal further. So there's a there's this sort of double question that Abinadi and then Jesus both address about the nature of God, the nature of the Godhead. Abinadi, of course, has these things to say in Mosiah 15 that we're all very confused by <laughs> about the Father and the Son. And, and in 3 Nephi 11, in connection with his return to Isaiah, Christ clarifies the nature of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost, apparently because debates had arisen in the wake of Abinadi's talk. He also addresses the question of baptism. Abinadi inspires Alma, who launches a baptismal tradition, and Christ addresses that as well in 3rd Nephi and sets up a new baptismal regime. But there's also what you find in Isaiah goes, I think, far beyond even those two questions. Work I've done more recently than this article has, I think, helped me to see that what's even more central here is just the identity of the people of God, the role the covenant plays in history, and this is what interests the Book of Mormon as a whole, Nephi and Christ in particular.
0: Okay, now I'm going to take each of these narrative hinges, and I'm going to bring out a point that was interesting to me. Sure. When I'm reading Second Nephi, and it's talking about covenantal history, at that point I feel like this doesn't really apply to my life. Sure. And there's a line in this article where you say that Nephi misappropriates the term likening. Mm -hmm. And I'd like you to elaborate on that for a little bit, because I think that scripture where it says we should liken all scriptures to us, then we go to this and we're like, I'm seeing nothing here. Yeah, Why do you think it's misappropriated?
1: We often take Nephi to mean something just like, yeah, I should apply this to my everyday life. But it's pretty clear in context that Nephi means something very specific by likening. You can find this in 1 Nephi 19, the clearest. That's the passage we like to quote, but you also find it in 2 Nephi 6. You find it in 2 Nephi 11. Various places Nephi and Jacob use this term likening, and they seem to mean the following. It means to recognize the original historical meaning of the text of Isaiah, and then to find in it a kind of pattern for God's working with human beings or with the covenant people in particular, and then to see how that covenant pattern applies again and again in history. So rather than taking a text and saying, how does this give me an understanding of my own peculiar life? Nephi seems to say something like, in this we find the way God deals with peoples. And then that's a pattern that repeats again and again. The thing that Nephi likens Isaiah to most consistently is the stuff he's seen in vision rather than his own. Particular life. He doesn't want to say, Oh, how do I make sense of our trek across the wilderness or across the ocean? Oh, Isaiah can help me see that. He says, I've seen in vision this whole history of the relationship between the remnant of Israel and the New World and the Gentiles from Europe and the rise of Christianity. How can Isaiah help me make sense of that? And that's what he sees by likening.
0: Then we move to Abinadi who's before Noah's priests, I was fascinated that Noah's priests were so familiar with the words of Isaiah. Yeah. Here's a group that left Sarah Hemla. I guess we can do some speculation here. They had a maybe paper copy Something, of the brass yeah. plates. Likely they didn't have it memorized. Do you have any guesses on how they were so familiar with the words of Isaiah?
1: There seem to have been copies in some sense because Abinadi also know, he knows Exodus well enough to quote the Ten Commandments at length. So it would seem that there's some availability of texts. But even if we weren't to play that card, I think there's enough evidence here to suggest that this kind of interpretation of this Isaiah text has been going on for long enough in this colony under Zenith already that it's probably... It, we may not really have an indication that the priests know Isaiah that well. It may just be that this proof text has been floating around and has become so ideologically dominant that they know it, even if they don't have the text ready to hand.
0: So oral history, which was Could be. prevalent in the old world at that time yeah, absolutely. for passing down doctrine. So why do you think Abinadi who we see as a great man of God, made such a huge departure in his preaching to Noah from Nephi?
1: It's a great question. I'm convinced that Mormon wants us to see it as something God does through Abinadi, rather than sort of like, Abinadi comes along and off we go in this funny direction.
0: So he's not going rogue.
1: Right. I don't think he's going rogue. I think Abinadi is presented in the text with a situation that's almost impossible here's this text, and they can say, look, we're likening. Here's the pattern, the covenant pattern you find in Isaiah. Here it is being lived out in our own circumstances. We're just doing what Nephi told us. And if a Abinadite were to say, well, Nephi's wrong. This is not going to go well. If he were just to say, well, no, I think maybe it means these other nuances, then the argument would never get anywhere. But if he just says, totally new interpretive regime, here we go, then we can get somewhere. And I see it as divinely deliberate. The other thing here that I think is really interesting and important is that you'll remember this moment in the Abinadi story where he comes or where they go to lay their hands on him and his face is shining and the text explicitly connects this to Moses on the mount and we often go, oh, well, he's been reading the Ten Commandments, so he's like Moses. That's possible, but another way we could interpret this is if you look at the moment in the Moses story in Exodus where Moses' face shines, it's when he comes down after the second time of receiving the law, right? He's come down with the law the first time, smashes it because of the idol worship, goes back up and receives a new law, and it's when he comes down with the new law, a lower law, as Latter-day Saints interpret it, that his face is shining. And I wonder if maybe Mormon is making an illusion deliberately and saying, Abinadi is giving you Isaiah in a new way, a kind of lower law that people can handle for a time. Focus them on Jesus. Let's get these people to survive until Jesus comes, and then they'll be ready for something more like the fullness of Isaiah.
0: Now, didn't Matthew do the same thing when he was talking about Christ on the Mount of Transfiguration? He alluded to the burning bush. Mm -hmm. So whenever there's a new law, I guess this would be likening. So that glow on Abinadi would say, okay, here's a new law because you can't live the old one.
1: Yeah. Yeah, I think something uh, like that. Except that it, with Abinadi, it's almost the inverse mm-hmm. of what we get with Matthew, right? Well, Here, instead the new of law a is greater law, law, we
0: have the lower law. Yeah. Just like uh, Moses received right. a lower law. Yeah.
1: But then the idea is when Christ comes, he'll bring the higher law, as he does in Matthew.
0: And so when Christ comes, what exactly does he change that Nephite culture has been doing for 200 years?
1: Uh, He refocuses Isaiah on the covenant and on Israel's history, and, and especially on the future of Israel's history, the remnant of Israel in the new world, Lamanites who survive into the present, and the role they have in relationship to Gentile Christianity brought from Europe. He refocuses Isaiah in a likening way, on that whole story and says we can find in Isaiah a clear pattern for understanding what's at stake in that.
0: And he does clarify that there's a Father and a Son Mm -hmm. and a Holy Ghost, and he actually changes the way they do baptisms in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Ghost,
1: correct? Yeah. And he ties all of that into his interpretation of Isaiah in a really interesting way. He quotes this passage that the priests present to Abinadi, but he quotes it twice. And the first time he quotes it, it stands exactly as you find it in the King James Bible. The Lord, the arm of the Lord is made bare, blah, blah, blah. He quotes it a chapter or two later, and he changes the words. And here it's clear that this is not supposed to be like the original wording, because he's just quoted it the way it stands in the Bible. And the second time, he replaces instances of the, of the Lord with the Father. And then he follows his quotation with, and the Father and the Son are one. So he clearly is tying this vision of the Godhead that he's introducing to his interpretation of Isaiah and wants to distinguish between the role of the father and the role of the son in the unfolding of covenantal history.
0: I'm going to go back to 1 Nephi. (laughs) Good. (laughs) So Nephi quotes from what we would consider Isaiah 1 Mm -hmm. and Isaiah 2, which Mm -hmm. is Deutero-Isaiah. Sure. Now, you give a reason for why he goes to both of those sections yeah. even though we think second Isaiah was written after Lehi's family left Jerusalem right
1: Yeah so first Isaiah is traditionally divided uh, the well people divide the text of Isaiah up into first Isaiah which is Isaiah 1 through 39, second Isaiah which is Isaiah 40 through 55 and third Isaiah which is Isaiah 56 through 66. It's interesting that 3rd Isaiah more or less doesn't show up in the Book of Mormon at all, but Nephi is interested in 1st Isaiah and 2nd Isaiah. When he quotes from 2nd Isaiah, what he seems to be interested in is this prophetic, pattern is maybe the best way to put it, but this prophetic idea that Isaiah has that Israel goes into exile, leaves the Holy Land to find itself among Gentiles so that when God redeems Israel, the Gentiles have a chance to learn of Israel's true God. And as a result, have an opportunity to join in the work of redeeming Israel and become a part of the covenant itself. That's what Nephi seems to find in 2nd Isaiah. And he sees that as not only what happens in, say, the exile in Babylon, but as what's going to happen with the remnant of Israel in the new world. Gentile Christians will come to the new world. And when God redeems the remnant of Israel, the descendants of Lehi, then Gentile Christians will have a chance to see the fullness of the Abrahamic covenant at work. And they'll transform Christianity in the right direction what we would call the restoration. What he sees in First Isaiah seems to be slightly different. There he seems to see some prophecies of the Messiah, but primarily he seems to see a story about how the remnant is created in the first place. The devastations and destructions that come on Israel for failing to understand their covenant obligation, and the result being that they are winnowed down to a remnant that will be prepared to receive the full picture here we get into some complications. I don't know how much we want to go into this, but many interpreters of Isaiah today see a link between 1st and 2nd Isaiah. That 1st Isaiah has an emphasis on a sealed book. So Israel is not prepared, they're rebellious, and so they're going to go through this history of destruction and winnowing down to a remnant. But Isaiah has all these prophecies about that, and he's forced to seal them all up for a later generation that will be ready to receive them. The remnant is that generation that will later able to read the book.
0: Okay, now your discussion on this fascinated me. So I turned to the Isaiah chapter you were talking about, because I thought, sealed book. I hadn't heard that before, that Isaiah was having trouble with his people. They Mm -hmm. weren't being righteous. Isaiah or the redactors or the team of scribes, whatever, that wrote Isaiah 1. So he sealed up what he had. Yeah. That is not a typical LDS interpretation. Right. So I went to my LDS scriptures and I opened it up to read it, just to verify. And the head note the first word was Nephites. And it was almost jarring. I'm like, Whoa, I'm in the old testament. <laughs> Why am I reading Nephites? I think that's this is a good place to talk about the yeah. difference between scripture and head notes, I right. think. <laughs> yeah. And you could take a stab, or I could take a stab, but yeah. I I don't want to say anything about LDS scriptures because that's what I read. But it represented those headnotes, the best scholarship we had in the 70s, right. which isn't to mean scholarship has stopped right. since that time. Right. What would you like to add?
1: I can understand where the chapter heading is coming from if you go to like Isaiah 29 in Mm -hmm. the Bible, right, Uh, in the LDS edition of the Bible, because Nephi likens Isaiah 29 to that history. And so it doesn't make, uh, it's not surprising to see a Latter-day Saint go, oh, okay, Nephi sees that this is the meaning of Isaiah. But if we see what Nephi means by likening, then we can go, oh, okay, Isaiah 29 has its own story to tell about what Isaiah goes through and why he seals up his prophecies. And then, of course, Nephi sees in it a pattern that he can liken to the history he's seen in vision. So I don't think it's surprising to see the way the heading is written, but I think it's important for us to recognize that that's not probably what Isaiah himself had in mind. It's what Nephi did with Isaiah.
0: And I think the idea that the Book of Mormon had a portion sealed may have led to this idea that this is the sealing of a book that was referred to.
1: Yeah. So uh, so I think it's important for us to—and this goes for all of the passages in Isaiah that show up in the Book of Mormon—it's important for us to read them in Isaiah's context and history and setting and then recognize that the Book of Mormon is— tampering in a good way in a productive (laughs) theologically productive way with isaiah and the same way that we do today right we love to cite amos 3 7 and oh look at how this tells us about the pattern of prophets and amos would go hang on whoa right like i was doing something a little different in my context and so forth you're totally free to use it that way and i think we're inspired to do so but it's not the only meaning of amos nor is it what amos himself would have understood
0: And it's great when we take the scripture in context and see initially what it meant, then go on from there. Yeah. But that has to come first. Yeah.
1: Yeah, I think uh, we're maybe at a unique time in the history of the church where it's easier for us to be responsible about that than it has been in the past. And I hope we do, just as a people, get more responsible about that. We're totally free to say there's a Mormon interpretation of this biblical text But we'll do a lot better in conversing with other religions and so on if we can say, this is a Mormon interpretation, but we can see how there are other interpretations and that they're interesting and instructive as well. And maybe can add
0: depth to our interpretation.
1: And then, and allow, exactly, yeah. One, that will allow us to add depth to ours. And two, it will allow our interpretation, our traditional interpretations, to give depth to other people's interpretations. Whereas if we just say, this is the meaning of the text, we close off the conversation and people aren't interested in learning from our readings.
0: That's never fun when we're (laughs) like that. I'm right. Yeah. And I don't want to hear what you have to say. Yep,
1: that's right.
0: Okay, you recently had a book release. It's called The Visions of All, 25 Lectures on Isaiah and Nephi's Record. Yes. Can you tell us a little bit in, you know, just a few minutes, yeah. what is in this book?
1: Sure. Yeah. So it's uh, it continues the project I've been working on uh, for years. So it's closely related to my other books. I began working on Isaiah and the Book of Mormon in An Other Testament, which was republished recently by the Maxwell Institute. And then I deal with Isaiah, but mostly with Paul and the Doctrine and Covenants on the same themes in my book for Zion. What I've done in this book, in The Vision of All, is I've tried to take the sorts of things that, are, that have been wor- I've been working on in these other books and work them out in detail and at length in a totally accessible, non-scholarly way. And Other Testament is borderline unreadable (laughs) because it's theologically very heavy and it's very textually involved, scores of footnotes per chapter, et cetera. Here, what I've tried to do is just say, if I were to give a a 25 lecture series on what Nephi is doing with Isaiah, how would I do it? And I wrote it in the chatty way I am in my classroom, just trying to riddle out Isaiah's role in Nephi's record there are no footnotes. There's a small bibliography at the back, just so people can find books I mention along the way. But there's uh, no apparatus at all. Very non-scholarly. Well, as non-scholarly as I can muster while trying to sort out Isaiah and Nephi. But I've tried to write it for the average Latter-day Saint, and it just works from one end to the other. What is Nephi's record? What is it? What are his overarching purposes? What does he see in vision? In light of all of that, what is he doing with Isaiah? Can we go sort of chapter by chapter? What are the basic themes here? What are strategies for reading, etc.? And I hope I've brought Isaiah both down to earth while also keeping him complex the way he should be instead of making him easier. Or I've tried to demystify without simplifying, if maybe that's the way to put it.
0: And maybe give us a little bravery to read those chapters instead of having sticky pages.
1: I think that's right. What's needed is bravery. That's a good way to put it. Isaiah's tough and people get excited, you know, on oh, New Year's resolution, I'm going to read Isaiah this year, right? And I'm going to get serious about this in two chapters in. And by the going... way,
0: it's never been my New Year's resolution.
1: <laughs> good. <laughs> but yeah, I think people tend to start reading Isaiah and they get a couple of chapters in and they just throw up their hands and say, well, what do you do with a cow and a sheep? And but what, what does this even mean? But I try to give enough resources in there to say, look, here's how to find a good commentary so that when you come across a passage where you can just go, I have no idea, here's how to find some answers. Here what translations you might look at as alternatives to the King James to help you sort of get oriented. Here's how to understand what Nephi's doing so you don't assume that any, everything Nephi tells you about Isaiah gives you all the information you need. Yeah, it needs some bravery, uh, but it also we also need some tools.
0: Oh, absolutely. Uh, so when you start a long trek across the plains, the last thing you want to do is to not have flour in your cart. Yeah. And why reinvent the will if exactly. someone's going to help you tap into that resource?
1: Yeah. And there's maybe an aspect of bravery that's important there. It's easy for us as Latter-day Saints to be distrusting toward biblical scholarship, but it's important for us to say, we're not going to draw all the same conclusions. We have certain faith commitments that are going to make us say, all right, 2nd Isaiah was probably written earlier or whatever. But these people have worked on this text for 2,000 years. They've done a lot more Hebrew study than we have collectively. They know a lot more about ancient world history and so on than we do collectively. We have a lot to learn, but it takes a bit of bravery to, to read biblical scholarship and, uh, and learn from it.
0: Is this way out there? I look at the Old Testament and I think, this is Jewish scripture. I should pay attention to how they interpret it.
1: No, Absolutely absolutely and Nephi himself emphasizes the importance of understanding the manner of prophesying among the Jews and so on he says you should know something about jewish history jewish culture jewish geography we should pay as much attention to that as possible like it's complicated with Isaiah in particular because there's a very long history of protestant scriptural theology and exegesis, and it's a lot easier to find Protestants talking about Isaiah than it is to find Jews talking about Isaiah. But there is good Jewish scholarship on Isaiah that should be consulted, I think.
0: Now, in conclusion, just in five sentences or less,
1: we'll see, (laughs) or
0: more, what would you like to tell members of the church about Isaiah and Nephi? What do you think would be most valuable for them? at this point?
1: I guess I would say, one, we can't get around it. We absolutely can't get around it. We have to read Isaiah and read him carefully. If we miss it, we're missing the Book of Mormon. The title page itself says that the Book of Mormon was written to the remnant of Israel to show what great things the Lord has done for their fathers, and also to the convincing of Jew and Gentile that Jesus is the Christ primary purpose focuses on the Abrahamic Covenant and the way the Book of Mormon makes sense of the Abrahamic Covenant is through Isaiah so if we're serious about that book we've got to get serious about Isaiah
0: Thanks Joe, I appreciate you visiting with us today Bye
1: Here's what's coming up on the next episode of the LDS Perspectives podcast
2: So where does the breastplate fit into all of this? I mean you say that you you have the white stone you've got the brown stone, you've got the interpreters but we often hear about this breastplate. Right. What's that about? Right. So it's it, this one is a, is really a mystery. I, I swear to you, I've done more research on the breastplate than anything, and I've been left dry. And so that's the best way to start it. Where does its origination come? So these stones that he gets with the gold plates, they come with the breastplate. And those are the three things, the plates, the breastplate, and the Nephite interpreters, uh, Mosiah II's, interpreters that are bound together with a metal figure eight. They come together apparently, right? But the problem is the real first account of this comes in 1839 in Joseph Smith's history after everything's become biblicized. And the only account that you get early on is a reflection from Lucy Mack Smith where she says, I got to hold the breastplate covered in a, in a handkerchief. So it's obviously not that big, right?
0: LDS Perspectives podcast is not affiliated with The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. The opinions expressed on this episode represent the views of the guest and podcaster alone. and LDS Perspectives podcast and its parent organization may or may not agree with them. While the ideas presented may vary from traditional understandings or teachings, they in no way reflect criticism of LDS Church leaders, policies,
2: or practices.